Well, I teach history at the University of Denver just down the road, as many of you know, and one of the classes that I teach is called A Moral History of World War II. And if I had to give it a subtitle, it would be this, An Exploration of Violence, Death, and Evil in Our World. Sounds like a fun class, right? But it's really an important class because, of course, there are realities of World War II that we are all familiar with. The rise of Nazism, the violent, oppressive, racist rhetoric of Hitler, the unfathomable evil of the Holocaust. And it doesn't matter what you believe about faith or religion or God. In fact, most of the students in my class are not Christians. But when we talk about these things... Not a single one of them hesitates to use words like immoral, wrong, evil. But things get deeply complicated when students learn that in the late 1930s, when Jewish people were desperately fleeing persecution in Germany, the overwhelming majority of American citizens did not want them refused to help them, literally turned boats of refugees away to go back to Europe, where many were exterminated in death camps. Things get deeply complicated when students learn that American citizens of Japanese descent were rounded up in America after Pearl Harbor and sent to live in concentration camps in America. In fact, right here in Colorado. Things get deeply complicated when students learn that the American military embraced non-discriminatory bombing of civilians in Germany and Japan. On the night of March the 9th, 1945, U.S. planes firebombed Tokyo, a city with virtually no military significance at the time, burning to death. 120,000 people, men, women, and children, in one night. And this was months before we dropped two atomic bombs that would kill many, many more. Things get deeply complicated when students learn that one of our primary allies in fighting against Hitler was Stalin, a dictator who over his lifetime most historians Uh, believe was responsible for more brutality, more death, more murder, more ethnic genocide than Hitler ever was. This was our ally, whom we supported, who we aided, who we supplied military arms to. And by the end of the quarter teaching this class, after wrestling with all of these moral complexities, there's one thing that all students agree on. Our world is full of evil. But you don't need to look at history to learn that. We see that today, right? Thousands of innocent people were tortured and killed by terrorists in Gaza a couple of months ago. Tens of thousands of innocent people have been killed in retaliation now. Almost 2 million people have been displaced from their homes, are starving to death, and probably can never return. The world is full of evil. And we don't have to go around the world to see this. Right here in the U.S., 
150 people die every day from opioid overdose. And that's because illicit drug makers have figured out how to make really cheap synthetic fentanyl that is 50 times stronger than heroin, much more addictive, much more deadly. And they don't care what it does to people because they're making money off of it. That's evil. Even closer to home. One of my daughter's friends, a teenager at her school, just a few weeks ago was raped by a family member. And I wish that was rare. It's not. One in four women in the U.S. are victims of sexual violence. That's evil. Now, I share those dark realities today because we are in this season of Advent, which is fundamentally about the darkness. And during Advent uh, this year, we are reading the book of Isaiah, and perhaps you've never read this book from the Old Testament. Perhaps you're new to the Bible or church or faith. Um, Maybe you have read it before. Maybe you're reading it with us right now. If you are, you know it's a very complex book. And there's some small snippets of prophecies about a little child that will be born. And we looked at some of those last week. The subtitle of the message last week was, A Child is Coming. But 95% of the book of Isaiah is not about this little child. Most of the book, if you could give it a more accurate subtitle, would be this. Judgment is coming. Now, that word judgment, when you hear it or when you see it, it often gets a bad rap, right? People say, don't judge me. Don't judge a book by its cover. Don't be so judgmental. Don't judge others. And while these statements are true and they're valid and they're good sentiments, especially that last one, do not judge others, that one actually comes from a guy named Jesus who was a pretty solid guy, right? So we have these ideas about how judging other people is wrong. And then we read an Old Testament prophet like Isaiah who talks about God judging people over and over and over. And it's confusing, it's, it's unsettling, it's disturbing. In fact, it's, it's quite offensive. And this is why before we read Isaiah and these passages and these words of judgment, we have to start with the reality of evil in our world. And so let me ask you a question Do you want Hitler to be judged? Because humanly speaking, he got away with everything he did. When the Allied forces finally closed in on him, he took his own life so that he would not have to face judgment. And isn't there something deep within all of us that says, that's not right. There must be judgment. There must be justice. For what he did. And isn't that true of any evil act that is perpetrated? Isn't this why we have laws and we have court systems and we have 
actual judges and actual juries. And as flawed as those systems and as flawed as those processes are sometimes, we still want them to work. We long for them to work. We want people who hurt other people to be held accountable for their actions. We want and we need judgment. And so we have to start with that reality first when we come to passages in Isaiah like this. This is from Isaiah chapter 2. The Lord of heaven's armies has a day of reckoning. He will punish the proud and mighty and bring down everything that is exalted. Only the Lord will be exalted on that day of judgment. Now, this passage in Isaiah is the first mention in the entire Bible of what is called the day of the Lord, or God's day of reckoning, or the day of judgment. And it's less about a specific calendar day, as if you could circle it on your calendar. It's more about the idea itself that God will judge those who have done wrong. And in fact, in this passage, Isaiah calls those people the proud and the mighty, because they've done horrible things, he, he describes that, but they think they've gotten away with it. They think they can do whatever they want. They think they don't have to answer to anyone else. And Isaiah says, no, 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 no. A day is coming when God will judge. And then if you keep reading for chapter after chapter after chapter, Isaiah describes this judgment. He starts by saying God's going to judge the Babylonians. And remember, this was written uh, 2,700 years ago. So back in that context, in that time period, the Babylonians were the bad guys, right? They were really wicked. They were known for doing some wicked things. And so he says, God's going to judge the Babylonians. And then he's going to judge the Philistines too. And he's going to judge the Assyrians. And he's going to judge the Moabites. And he'll judge the Egyptians. And then he'll come back around and judge the Babylonians again. Because remember, they're really, really wicked. But then Isaiah says... God's going to judge Israel too. That Israel is not immune. They don't get any special treatment. They don't get a pass. In fact, they should know better than anyone else how to treat other people with dignity and love and compassion because that's what God did for Israel. And God has given Israel this amazing opportunity and responsibility to show the world what that looks like. But Isaiah looks around, and even in Israel, God's chosen people, he sees oppression, the strong and the powerful taking advantage of those who are poor and weak. He sees greed. He sees injustice. He sees rape and violence. He sees a nation putting their confidence in their military basically in their ability to conquer, kill, or enslave other people. And so Isaiah says to his own people, God is not going to let this go. God's not going to look the other way. There will be a day of reckoning. God will judge. Now, do you know why judgment is so important? It's because judgment is necessary for justice, peace, and forgiveness. Judgment is necessary for justice, peace, 
and forgiveness. See, you cannot have justice without judgment. You can't make things right in the world without saying that was wrong. There's no way to deal with the injustice in our world, whether that's uh, social injustice, criminal injustice, or personal injustice, without judging the wrong that was done. You just can't make something right until you're honest about the wrong. Now, there's all kinds of discussions we can have about how to make things right, about consequences or penalties or punishment or restitution. And those are justice questions, right? How is justice most effectively administered? What does true justice look like? Should justice be retributive or restorative? And those are really important questions. But there is no kind of justice that can even begin to happen without judgment first. Judgment is necessary for justice. It's also necessary for peace and forgiveness. I mean, on the most basic level, let's say someone uh, steals your bike, or let's say uh, someone makes an insulting remark about you, right? Maybe it's something it's not true, it's mean-spirited, right? And if you don't know them very well, you can live with it, right? You just brush it off because you don't care that much. But the closer the person is to you, the more it's going to hurt. And so let's say they're a dear friend, and they say something that's just... They intentionally wound you with their words. There will not be any peace in your relationship with them. And there will not be any potential for forgiveness until there is an acknowledgement and a judgment of what they did. Where you say, here's how you hurt me. Here's how you wounded me. And maybe, here's how I hurt you back. And here's how I wounded you back. And then you hurt me and wounded me again. And then it just got circular and it kept escalating. And we just kept hurting and wounding each other back in it. And it was this thing that went around and around and around. But until we judge the wrongs, we cannot move toward peace and forgiveness. And that's not true on just a personal scale. Uh, That's actually true on a global scale. It's why nations that want to heal after war or conflict or or genocide or, or racist ideologies, it's why they set up truth and reconciliation processes. In order to find peace and forgiveness and reconciliation, we first have to tell the truth about what happened. We need truthful, honest judgment. And so, when you come to the book of Isaiah, here's what he's doing when he talks about the day of God's judgment over and over and over. And by the way, uh, sometimes Isaiah is really graphic, and he's vivid, and he's more like an artist. He's painting these dark and disturbing pictures, and it's mostly just to get our attention. And a lot of the other prophets in the Old Testament are this way as well. They use pictures and poetry, and they talk about God's judgment in these vivid ways. By the way, uh, Jesus does this too. I mean, most of the time he's nice Jesus, but every now and then he turns into judgment Jesus, and he actually quotes Isaiah, and he talks about a coming day of judgment. The apostle Paul talks about it too, and Peter. So this isn't just an Old Testament prophet thing. And whenever you read uh, some of these verses or passages in the Bible, it's okay when you first read them to feel offended. I mean, that's a natural response. That, that's understandable. 
But the message that we really need to hear, the one that is so important, the one that is so necessary when we still live in a world that is full of evil is this. God will not overlook evil. That's what Isaiah wants us to know. God will not overlook evil. God will not overlook evil. It will not go unjudged. It will not go undealt with. All of the wrongs that people are seemingly getting away with, all of the ways that justice is not being served, all of the ways that our broken justice systems are falling short, all of the things that people do to hurt and wound and kill other people, either physically or emotionally or psychologically or spiritually, Isaiah is saying, God will not overlook evil. And so when you are filled with despair, when you are filled with that sense of hopelessness, that sense that the world is just not the way it should be, Isaiah says, yeah, I know. And God sees you. And God knows what you're feeling. And he has not forgotten about what's happening. And he will not overlook evil. Now, that does not answer the question, what do we do in the meantime? What do we do when it looks like God is overlooking evil? What do we do when it seems like God is letting evil happen? in the world out there or in the world in our midst, and it seems like God just isn't doing anything about it. What do we do? Or to put the question more succinctly, what do we do in the darkness? And I want to offer four brief and humble suggestions this morning. What do we do in the darkness? Well, first, we wait and groan. Uh, Paul says in his letter to the Romans that all of creation is waiting and groaning, like a woman uh, groaning in labor for the day when new life will spring forth and peace and forgiveness and redemption will be this full and ultimate and total reality. And we taste that in part now. We, We taste some uh, elements of peace in our lives or, or pieces of redemption or aspects of, of, of forgiveness and, and new life, but it's not a full reality. And, and in fact, sometimes the darkness does seem to overwhelm the light. And Advent is a season of being honest about this, of leaning into this waiting and this groaning in labor. It's okay to groan. Second, We pray and work for peace and justice. So I cannot, and you probably cannot do much about the situation in Israel and Palestine right now. But we can pray. We can pray, God, do not overlook the evil. Do not ignore the cries of victims. Lord, may your peace and justice prevail. May peacemakers and justice makers rise up. May the violence makers be frustrated. May the war makers be brought down. So we pray for peace and we pray for justice. And where we can, 
in our own neighborhoods, in our own cities, we work for peace and justice. What else do we do in the darkness? Third, we turn inward to lament and repent of the darkness in our own lives. You see, we all know and we all believe that we too are capable of hurting others, of mistreating others, of adding to the evil in the world. And we're not just capable of it, we do it. Now, that's not to suggest that when I say something mean to a friend or to a coworker or to someone in my family, right, that it's equivalent to ethnic genocide. It is not. But nor is it to be overlooked. And so groaning over the darkness in the world means also groaning over the darkness in my own life as well. The places where I need God's help where I need God's rescue or God's redemption or God's transformation in my life. In fact, this is what Jesus meant when he said, don't judge other people. Why? Because you haven't judged yourself yet. And you can't do anything about the sin or the evil or the problems in other people's lives until you start with your own. And so the darkness of the world is a reminder to all of us to turn inward and lament and repent of the darkness in our own lives. But fourth and finally, we remember Jesus when we're in the darkness. We remember that Jesus entered the darkness to be with us. So we're not alone here. We remember that Jesus sat with people in the darkness. Women who had been abused, soldiers who were violent, swindlers who had taken advantage of other people, outcasts who had been taken advantage of, people in pain, people in sickness, people in death. Jesus sat with them in the darkness. And we remember that Jesus experience the darkness in ways that few of us ever will. He was unjustly accused. He was betrayed by friends, abandoned by his disciples, and beaten and executed by a corrupt and unjust system. So Jesus can say to you and to me and our seasons of waiting and groaning, he can say, I know the pain that you feel. I know the frustration you feel. I know the darkness that you feel. I know all of that, and you are not alone. I am with you. Because God is with you, and that's what Emmanuel means, right? God with us, and he will not overlook the evil in this world. One day, he will make all things right and new again. But until then, We wait, and we groan, and we pray, and we work, and we lament, and we repent, and we remember that Jesus is with us. Let's pray. God, I pray for anyone who is listening to this message, who feels 
Like they're just overwhelmed by the darkness. Whether it's the darkness in our world or the darkness in their own life or their own heart. I pray for those who are doubting your presence, who are unsure how or what to do, who don't even have the words to pray, who find it hard to wait or to hope. And I pray, God, that we might be a community that can wait and hope together. And that we might be able to lift one another up. And we might be able to sit in the darkness together. And we might be able to wait and groan and lament and even repent together. And God, I pray more than anything else that when we find it really, really hard to trust and wait and hope in you, that you would just give us whatever we need to know that you are with us. We pray this in your name. Amen.